This is the Mark Podcast from Lifeway Women. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Heineman and Kelly King. Each episode, we'll talk about what God is doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you've joined us today. Designed to assist women of any age as they study God's Word, the CSB Lifeway Women's Bible will inspire you to laugh, grow, and worship alongside your community. It includes an in-depth collection of inspirational articles, devotional commentary, study tools, and other Bible reading helps from prominent voices in the Lifeway Women community, like Lauren Chandler, Priscilla Shire, Angie Smith, and more. As you explore God's Word, you're reminded that every Christian woman is called to live confidently in her identity, known, free, and loved in Christ. Go to LifeWay.com or the link in the show notes to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Mark Podcast. I am Elizabeth Heineman and I am here with my co-host, Kelly King. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Elizabeth. Let's tell our audience a little bit about what's happening this summer. I know. It is so exciting. So we have been, for the past few summers, we have been blessed and able to release to y'all the audio teaching from some of our Bible studies. And we are so excited because this summer we are bringing to you, to your ears, the audio sessions of How Much More, a Bible study by Lisa Harper. And so... Tell us a little bit more about how this is all going to work, Kelly. Absolutely. So on Mondays, we'll release one new audio teaching session each week. And we're going to leave all of the episodes up until the end of August, so August 31st. So if you get a couple weeks behind or maybe you're on vacation, we want to make sure that you're able to catch up and do that. So what we want you to do is we want you to go to lifeway.com slash how much more, and we really want you to purchase the Bible study book because it's going to help you really learn more than just listening to the audio, but work alongside of it with the study book. And that link is going to be in the show notes as well. And we just know that y'all are going to be so blessed by this study. And so we're excited to get to bring it to you. So here is Lisa Harper. Welcome to session two of How Much More. I'm so tickled y'all came back. I kind of, kind of like, yes! I'm excited y'all came back. Okay, I'm gonna start with another warning. Those of y'all who know me, Tina, Shane, y'all know I love to tell me some stories, but I also do not have the gift of concise. So whichever one of y'all has some Pentecostal in your background, you need to pray for brevity because I'm gonna start with a story that happened last spring when Missy and I got to just have this dream experience. I have wanted to go on safari in Africa since I was seven years old. Um, my, my mom let a missionary stay at our house. My stepdad wasn't a believer, so we never got to have missionaries stay in our house. But this one time a missionary stayed in our house, and he was from Africa. And I can still remember the slides. And so I just kind of fell in love with the continent when I was seven years old. Didn't know it take me 50 years to actually go on safari in Af- Africa. By then, of course, my dreams had morphed. 
served because I started at seven just hoping I could stay in a tree house like Tarzan, you know. But by 50, I wanted something a little more Meryl Streepy, you know. Like I wanted like the luxury lodge with the mosquito nets. And so y'all can probably imagine my delighted surprise when after 37 hours of travel from Nashville, Tennessee to Hoodspray, South Africa, we get to the resort and the manager of the resort comes out and informs me that there has been a booking issue. And so instead of getting the room that I had reserved, they have moved Missy and I to our own private luxury lodge. And, and I should have known that there was a, a hitch to that, but I just, you know, I was, I was jet lagged and I thought, this is amazing. And, and then I knew we were probably in trouble when they loaded our suitcases into a special Land Rover that had clearance, you know, about this high because where we were going was so rough. They didn't tell me it was two miles in the interior of the bush, um, in, in the middle of the African bush, no, no people around, no even electricity. Well, I mean, it had generator electricity, but it was so off the grid that as the guides and I are getting there, they of course are armed guides because of all the big cats in the area. We get to this beautiful lodge in the interior of Africa and the two guides, one stays in the vehicle with a gun to protect us and the other one goes in the, this little bungalow and does a full sweep. Michelle has been with the government. So, you know, it's kind of a big deal. You know, like little talky things in his ear. Does this full sweep, locks every single window and every single door, then warns us not to open a window or a door until they come back to fetch us at 5.30 the next morning. And then right as they're about to pull away in their, in their Land Rover, they mentioned that they had just seen a nine-foot black mamba right outside the bungalow before they brought us to the bungalow. And then they zoomed away before I could faint because... <laughs> In the 37 hours of transit, I had spent most of that time studying the type of wild animals we might encounter on an African safari. And I'd spent, I don't know, four hours studying all of the attributes, if you want to call it that, of a black mamba. <laughs> so by then I knew black mambas um, are one of the most lethal snakes known to mankind. Two drops of venom is all it takes to kill a human. They grow up to 14 feet and you can't can't look at them or move toward them if you come upon one because they interpret that as aggression. And then they're known to launch themselves in the air, in the air, so that they can seek their fangs into a victim. And so right after they tell me, they've just seen a black mamba and they said, so don't open the doors because they really like the cool of the tile in your bungalow. And so we often find them because if we don't pay attention, they slither in under the crack of the door and hide under the bed or in the corners. And so, you know, then they zoomed off in a cloud of dust and, and it was just Missy and I in the interior of Africa. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And so Missy fell asleep just like that. You know, poor little pumpkin was just worn out. It was a cool Meryl Streepy bed, all the, you know, the mosquito netting. And I started to pray out loud as I was unpacking our, our suitcases. I was just praying in the name of Jesus. There'd be a hedge of protection around us. There'd be no mamas. I and mean, I'm just praying. I'm singing worship songs. I'm just like, there will be, you know, there will be. I mean, if I'd had olive oil, I would have just slung it all over the room. And I was just... 
you know, I was just a, a, you know, just a little bit wary of, of the mambas. And, and so when I finally got into bed, of course, I was just a teensy bit anxious, but I thought, you know, we're fine. God is going to take care of us. And as soon as I turned out the lights, I had to use this remote thingy that connected with the generator. There's no light switches that work. So I do the little smart thing and click out the lights. And within, I don't know, 30 seconds, I hear this shuffle thump, shuffle thump, shuffle thump. And I thought, and you know when you know it's in the room? You know, they had told me that because of where we were, we were in a bluff overlooking a river. So they said, you'll have baboons at night that'll come on the roof. You might have a leopard or two at night, sometimes lions. But they said, there's just a small, small crack between the wall and the thatch roof and the big predators can't squeeze in. So no worries. And, and they said, you know, it's likely there'd be some animals, but small things like mambas in, in your room. And so when I heard the, the shuffle thump shuffle, I thought, huh. and you know when it's dark, I mean, this is dark dark. I mean, interior, interior of the African bush. There's no street light. There's, there's no little, you know, blue light from your iPad. I mean, it is dark. And so I'm lying there just desperately trying to discern, you know, when you're squeezing your eyes, even though it's dark, cause you're trying to make your ears work harder. And I thought, where's the sound coming from? Where's the sound coming from? And I could tell it was getting louder and I hadn't even taken ambience. So there's nothing weird in me. And I was like, where's it coming from? And then um, I thought, let me just turn on the light. Let me find that smart remote. Well, I had dropped it and the bed was high and I was afraid if I got out of the bed, the mamba would bite me. And so, you know, it was a little bit of drama finding the remote. I finally find the remote. I click on the lights. And as soon as I click on the lights, I realize immediately where the sound is coming from. But it's catty corner from the bed. There's one of those beautiful woven African baskets. And the basket was going like this. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious, there's a mamba in the basket because it looked just like one of those woven baskets that the snake charmers keep the cobras in. And I thought, there's mamba, there's mamba in the basket. And I thought, what do I do? What do I do? And I thought, Lisa, stay calm, stay calm. I thought, just call the main lodge. And so, you know, I didn't want the mamba to bite me. And so I real quickly got to the phone, pick it up. Well, you have to have a satellite code. So there's, there's no signal. Of course, there's no cell phone signal. And then I thought, okay, we can't hike back to the main lodge. It's over two miles and this is when the predators are out. It's pitch dark on this rough road. And so it's up to me to protect my child from certain death and the fangs and the flesh and all that. And so I thought, I'm just going to root around because this is a luxury lodge. Surely there's a kitchen knife or something. And so I start rooting around. This is all I found. Now, this isn't the exact umbrella, but it looked like this. It was a touristy umbrella with a hook on the end. And I thought, okay. I mean, that's all I got. It's like the slingshot. We can do it. And so I thought by now I'd come up with a plan. I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to put the, the bottom of the umbrella at the bottom of the basket and I'm going to scooch the basket toward one of the doors they told me not to open. And then when I get it to the door, I'll just quickly unlock the door and shove the basket outside before the mama kills us. And so I started scooting the basket. But when I started scooting it, they had these beautiful terracotta floors with deep grooves. So the edge of the basket hooked in one of those grooves. And as I'm pushing it, the basket started the tip. So I thought I'm going to dump the snake out and he's going to kill us all. He's going to launch himself in the air, probably a 15 footer. And so just instinctively, instinctively, I grabbed the top of the basket so I can keep it from falling over. And y'all, when I grabbed the top of the basket, ah! <laughs> 
That's just hateful. I didn't even have that thought. That was just hateful, Tina. And it's a fox. It's not what came out. This huge furry thing that looked kind of like a kangaroo had gotten jiggy with a rat. I mean, it was just, it was, it was scary. It was so scary. It comes flying up out of the basket and this thing, I didn't know what it was, it jumps to the top of the curtain rod and I didn't even have time to feel relief that it wasn't a snake because it starts screaming, like, like screaming, running around the curtain rod in our bedroom. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna protect my kid. And so this became kind of a sword. And I just started, because I thought, I don't know if it's carnivorous or poisonous or if it launches. I don't know how big the fangs are, but I'm getting between it and my kid. That panicked it more, and it began to scream louder, and it started, it started spraying um, special stuff, um, kind of like marsupial mace, kind of, kind of. Um, and so then I panicked and screamed louder and wet my pants too. And so it was probably like three or four minutes of this jousting, screaming, peeing, just, just, just horrible catastrophe. I finally got it to the edge and I tumped it outside real quick and then closed the door so nothing would get in and kill us. And, and then of course I go to bed and, and I had the umbrella with me and of course I didn't sleep a wink. I just laid like this in the dark, listening to the baboons. And at 5.30 in the morning, the, the armed guards came back, guard guides. They came back and I began to tell them about this just vicious intruder. And I could tell they were trying not to laugh, which I thought was hateful. And then one of them said, Miss Lisa, and he pulled up a picture on his iPhone and he said, did it look like this? And I said, it looked exactly like that. And both of them just fell out laughing. And then when they stopped laughing, they told me that it was a giant galago, a bush baby. Um, it wasn't poisonous, it wasn't carnivorous. It's basically an oversized guinea pig. Um, <laughs> But I'm telling you, if y'all been there in the middle of the night, y'all been scared too. You've been whipping out everything you had in your purse because you know in the night when it's dark, you know how things just seem scarier? But you get into the light and you're like, oh, that's nothing. That's no big deal. Y'all, I think there's so much to be said regarding that metaphor with scripture. I think there are passages and stories and texts that we go, Ooh, that is so scary. But when you pull it out of the dark corner of assumption and you get it into the light of proper context, you go, oh, oh, that's not only not scary and that's not dangerous, that's redemptive. Oh my goodness, God isn't angry there. He's not furrowing his brows. He's actually smiling at us. Turn to Deuteronomy 22 in your Bible. I can almost promise you that you have not cross-stitched this one or done any Bible studies on Deuteronomy 22 because it is, at first glance, a scary passage. Deuteronomy 22:28. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Okay, doesn't that sound like Jerry Springer, if we're just being honest? 
I mean, this poor woman is violated and then he gives her daddy what sounds like a bribe and then he marries her. Doesn't that sound like it's adding insult to injury? And it's in the Bible. And you goodness gracious, that's kind of one of those passages we just need to keep in the closet because we don't need to let anybody see that one. That is scary. I remember two years ago, sitting in a seminary class and a professor pulled out that exact passage to prove how kind our God is. And I thought, he is punking us. There's no way he's going to be able to show me mercy in that kind of mess. That's just, that's too hard. That's too, I don't know how we can see God's love in that. And he began to explain that, of course, Deuteronomy is written right after God's people, our great, 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 great grandmamas and then some, that theocracy called Israel. They've just come out from 400 years of slavery, oppressive, cruel slavery in Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they were under a system that we could loosely call the first iteration of Sharia law. Now, if you know anything about Sharia law, you know that it is not pro-female. As a matter of fact, today, under modern Sharia law, if a woman says she's been raped and she does not have four male witnesses, according to the Quran, she can be killed. Now, just imagine the kind of oppression women are under in this era. Our professor told us that during this ancient time period, if any woman over the age of 12 and unmarried or not engaged, if any woman was out by herself, she was fair game for any man. So any man could violate and rape any woman, girl, over the age of 12. And do you know what the consequences were for the rapist? Nothing. Nada. Not a lecture, not a slap on the wrist, not a traffic ticket, no consequence for the violator. And yet the young woman who had been violated would be forever branded as damaged and unmarriable. My daughter is 11 and a half. How many of you have daughters who are that age and older who aren't yet married or engaged? Doesn't it make you sick to your stomach to know that these precious little girls could be attacked and abused and there's, there's no consequence but God. But God who comes riding into the story like a knight in shining armor and he says, no more. No more. I don't care that it's your cultural norm that little girls can be abused. I'm going to erect fences to protect my daughters. So from now on, if any of you Cretans are thinking about attacking one of my little girls, here's the deal. You are going to give her father money to set up a savings account for her. Now, this is a time period in history when women aren't allowed to hold property. So this is radically pro-female. You're going to set, set up a savings account for that daughter. Then you're going to give her your name, not to re-abuse her, 
but to begin to restore some of the dignity you stole because nobody else in your town is going to marry her. So I want you to give her your name. And then for the rest of her natural life, you will take care of her and you will pay for every mani petty she chooses. <laughs> this is one of the most pro-female passages in scripture and it's in the Old Testament in an area that most of us keep in a dark closet because we think it's scary. Y'all, there's no unibrowed angry God here. There's a merciful daddy who's committed to take care of his daughters at a time in culture when all of us were marginalized, when women were considered chattel, when women could be owned by a man. And God says, not my girls, not my girls. And lest you think this is a proof text about God's partiality toward his daughters. I want you to head backwards to the book of Numbers. I can promise you haven't cross-stitched this one either. Numbers chapter 27. This has become one of my favorite stories, if not in all of scripture, definitely in the Old Testament. And it's about these girls who are the daughters of Zelophehad. I'm convinced they took Krav Maga classes because these girls are, they're just tough. Then drew near, this is Numbers chapter 27, verse one. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Hardward, son of Manasseh. From the clans of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, the names of his daughters were Mela, Noah, Hogla. Now y'all, I know it's like kind of, <laughs> become trendy to, if you're a believer, to name your kids after biblical names, but don't, don't do Hogla. She'll be in therapy for the rest of her life. Hogla, Milka, oh, and I'm sorry. If any of y'all have already used Hogla, just, I don't know, better come up with a nickname or save for therapy. Milka and Tizra. And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer, the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers." Y'all, this is an audacious request because at this period of ancient history, they operated under the umbrella of absolute primogeniture, which meant that only sons inherited estates. So if a man died, all of his property went to his firstborn son. Now, if he didn't have a son, then all of his property went to his brother or his brother's son. It was a hierarchy of, of testosterone. I mean, women don't get anything in this culture. So for these daughters to come before Moses, I mean, that's, that's some chutzpah there. And they go, we don't think it's fair that because our father had no sons, that we're left out in the cold. We don't think that's fair. This is stunning. Moses brought their case before the Lord, verse five, and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. Do you hear that? Yes. I mean, that doesn't sound scary in Old Testament, does it? 
I mean, that's just stunning. The daughters of Zelophehad are right. Listen to this. In the context of culture, this is radical. You shall give them um, possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brother, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, well, then it goes on and on. But the bottom line is God says, okay, I love my girls. So we are going to change inheritance laws on their behalf. Did y'all know that was in there? I mean, it's just unstinking believable. Because you'd think these cheeky girls, when they go, we don't think this is fair based on the way we tend to to think Old Testament stories go, you'd think they'd be fried into grease spots of oblivion for being so audacious, for making such a scandalous request. And God says, I love my girls. I love my daughters. So right here, right now, we're going to change the laws of inheritance. Oh, that's stunning. It's stunning. Turn to the right two pages to the end of the book of Numbers. This this book that is oftentimes just seen as a census. I mean, how many times do we actually do quiet times in the book of Numbers? (laughs) I'm telling you, if you will take the time to peruse this supernatural book called the Bible, you'll find mercy on every page. You'll find love on every page. There is no scary God and kind Jesus. And all too often, that's the way we look at inscripturated revelation. We think of God in the Old Testament as being kind of a unibrowed policeman. And then we think of Jesus in the New Testament as being warm and fuzzy with Brett girl hair extensions. And that is not who God reveals himself to be. This is a rabbit trail. I hope it's redemptive. But it drives me plumb crazy when people say, well, the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't just speak red letters. Do you remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27? Our God is a Trinitarian God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't just come on the scene in Matthew any more than the Holy Spirit just came on the scene in Acts 2. From the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were there. It's just unbelievable. So we get to Numbers, this very redemptive book that is all too often just left out of our reading. And here's the redemptive truth. Verse five of Numbers 36. And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord saying, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. And then he goes on to say, this is what I command concerning to the the daughters of Zelophehad. But let me give you context. At this point in their story, it has become apparent that Z's daughters are probably going to lose the inheritance they worked so hard for because they're going to have to marry outside of their tribe, as was custom. And they're like, goodness gracious, you're kidding me. Just because I've got to have an arranged marriage, I'm going to lose the property that God gave me 
Y'all, we are not bold enough. And you know why we're not bold enough? We don't believe enough. We haven't really believed that the character of God is redemptive. We don't really believe that he is absolutely for us. That from the very beginning, he's been moving heaven and earth on our behalf. If we really believed that our God was for us, we wouldn't hesitate before we came before him and said, will you please redeem the mistakes I've made? Do you know how long it took me to say, could you please Give me a family. I know I've been dumb as a rock. I know I don't deserve one of those little handprints all my friends have from kindergarten where their kid pressed their hand into some of that clay and said, I love you, mom. I know I don't deserve that, God. But because you're good, because you're a redeemer, because you've always protected your daughters, would you please redeem my story? Goodness gracious, Can you only imagine what our lives would look like if we believed God was half as good as he reveals himself to be? The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry who they think is best. They said, you know, Lord, our our romantic, the romantic, what am I trying to say? Your, Your potential looks pretty rough which I can totally identify with. (laughs) You know, Lord, it looks like if we're going to have to marry who they say we're married, we won't even love them and we're going to lose the promised land that you gave us. And he says, let them marry who they think is best because I love my daughters. And so I will change inheritance law and I will change the customs of marriage to protect my daughters. I will even now begin to redeem some of the dignity that has been stolen from them. Y'all hear me and I want y'all to hear this loud. I'm not a feminist in the classical sense of the word. I am not gonna burn my bra and believe me, you don't want me to. (laughs) But it has taken me a long, long, long time to believe that God loves me without an asterisk. He doesn't look at me as less than because I'm a woman. He loves me because I'm his. This is 3,400 years before women marched to have the right to vote in the suffrage movement. 3,500 years before Title IX when there was a law made in the country of America that women couldn't be discriminated against in educational circles based on their gender. Over 3,000 years ago, God was already saying, I love my girls. I value my daughters. They're precious to me. Do not marginalize my daughter because I love her. It's stunning. If you really get the context, it's Stunning. These passages need to be pulled into the light of context because we are hemorrhaging daughters from church. I can't tell you how many young women I talk with on a regular basis who say, I can't stay in a conservative church culture because in order for me to live according to scripture, I have to dumb myself down. And I'm like, oh baby, you may have a bad pastor and you may have misogynists in your life and men with small minds and bad theology, but you don't know God's word. 
because God's word is so loving, so incredibly, incredibly redemptive toward his sons and his daughters. I was at a conference not too long ago. I got to to teach at, and it was an addiction recovery conference. And um, I have never struggled with meth or alcohol. I grew up half Baptist. My mom's Baptist. My dad's Pentecostal, so I'm Baptocostal. Um, so really, for years, the strongest thing I ever drank was NyQuil. I've never struggled with, with, with anything as far as a substance abuse. But I, I do identify with being a recovering addict. And I say this often. One of my favorite theologians is Dr. Ed T. Welch. And in an old classic book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, he made this assertion. He said, addictions are a disorder of worship. In other words, if you don't put Jesus in the deepest hole in your soul, you will run to the wrong places and the wrong people looking for love, especially if you've been wounded. I see so many daughters who've been wounded running away from God, thinking that our God is a misogynist, and he is the exact opposite. He loves his daughters. I was at this addiction recovery conference, and the first night I was kind of distracted by this woman who was at the front of the church because she was just going to town dancing. And it wasn't a real Pentecostal environment, and this woman, you could tell, she was very appropriate. She wasn't inappropriate, but she was just free. You know how you meet people and you go, man, I'd love to know their story because they've been redeemed from something huge to have that kind of liberty. And she was just worshiping the Lord, just kind of dancing. And I thought, man, I'd love to know her story. And so I was grateful the next morning. I got to church early because I got to teach in the morning. I thought I'll get there early and just get in and settle my heart and pray. And that woman who'd been dancing the night before, she was at the very front of the church. It was just the two of us in the sanctuary. And she was just up front by the altar praying. And so I walked up close to her. And, and when I could kind of interrupt her prayer, I told her how she had really blessed me the night before when I watched her worshiping. And, and I said, I'd love to know your story. And she said, well, my name is Joyce. And she had this just awesome alto kind of two-pack-a-day voice. I mean, just beautiful, gravelly voice. And she told me that God had uh, just redeemed her life from the pit. And she began to tell me her story, how um, she had been alcoholic and just had been to heck and back. And God had rescued her. And she had been sober for 13 years. And she said, I can't help but tell him thank you. I'm just undone with gratitude. Well, then everybody started coming in. We're starting the conference. And I said, I hope I get to talk to you more before everything's over. And, and then they, they introduced me and I walked up and I, I opened you know, my Bible and I told them who I was. And I told them I was just about to, to start teaching from this passage in Hebrews. And y'all can tell COVID's hard for me because I want to I wanna get close to you. It's so hard for me. I'm just not naturally a social distance kind of girl. And so I'm always trying to move closer and closer to people that when we're, when we're running toward Jesus together, I want to run together. You know, I want to be up close. And so this was pre-COVID. And so I just stepped right off the platform and stepped right down to the front of where everybody was in the sanctuary. And I looked up and there was Joyce. I mean, she was just right smack dab in front of me. This isn't Joyce. She's just right in front of me. So I'm 
was using her as a prop. So, so I was like, oh my goodness. And when I saw her, I just kind of, just kind of got excited. And I went, yo, this is my new friend, Joyce. And she's got the most incredible voice. And so I said, Joyce, will you read the passage I'm going to teach from? And I just kind of opened my Bible and gave her the mic. Now, I don't normally do that. You know, I don't normally accost people and ask them to do stuff in public unless they're my friends. And then Michelle, you know, I'll accost you all day long. But, but, but I, just, I just was excited. And so before I could help myself, I had given her my Bible and microphone. And she seemed just a teeny bit flustered at first, but then she started reading the passage, tripped over a few hard words, but then read the rest of it. And, and I was like, wasn't that awesome? And everybody kind of politely clapped. And she sat down. I went back and, and started talking about Hebrews. Well, at the end of the conference, Joyce came up and said, if you have a minute, I'd really like to to tell you what happened earlier in the day when you had me read from that passage. And I went, oh, Joyce, I'm so sorry, because I thought I have probably scarred her for life. You know, she probably has some kind of post-traumatic public speaking stress disorder. And here I've, you know, just totally stepped all over her bruise. And I said, I'm so sorry. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. It's not that. She goes, I need to tell you the rest of my story. She said, what I didn't tell you this morning is I fell off the wagon two years ago. She said, um, I was um, completely sober for 13 years. And then when I found out my fiance had an affair with one of my friends just a month before we were supposed to get married, it gutted me. And she said, I turned to Jack Daniels for comfort. And she said, after a bender of a weekend, I came back to the church that I was on staff and I told them everything that had happened, um, asked them to pray for me. I was uh, repentant. And she said, um, the church told me that because of the way I had broken the bylaws as a leader, that I was fired immediately with no severance. And she said, I get it. I totally get that. She said, I had, I had broken the standards that we are supposed to uphold as Christian leaders. She said, um, but after a, a month or two, I had to move my membership because she said, of course, word spread after that private meeting. And pretty soon I felt like every time I walked in the doors of the church, people were looking at me like I had a scarlet letter A on my chest for alcoholic. And she said, what you couldn't have known is the church that kicked me out. The church I left is, is this church the church where the conference is being held. She said, this is the first time I've come back into this sanctuary um, for two years. And she said, and I know you couldn't have known that when I was a little girl, I didn't know my dad and my mom was an addict and we lived in Appalachia and she didn't send me to kindergarten. And so the first day of first grade was the first time I set foot in school. And she said we had a a new naive teacher in Appalachia and she didn't know my backstory and she called on me to read that very first day of first grade. And she told me to stand up and she said I stood up with that little elementary uh, Dick and Jane primer and she said I didn't know a single letter of the alphabet. And so she said, I just kind of stammered. And eventually I repeated something I had heard on television in an advertisement and just hoped it was close to what was in the book. And she said, of course, immediately, all of the other kids started laughing and they started calling me stupid. And she said, from that day, first day of the first grade, until I graduated from high school, I've been traumatized about reading in public. She said, anytime. I found out I would have to stand in front of the class or read something out loud. I would study it for weeks beforehand. So I had it memorized word for word. And I said, oh, 
Joyce, I'm so sorry. And she goes, oh, no, no. She goes, Lisa, there's 350 people here. And out of all these people in this particular sanctuary, you picked me. And she said, I felt like God just scrolled back the clouds and said, that's my girl. Well, that's, that's really all of our stories. If you study this book, there's, there's no place in this book where God is ashamed of his daughters. He loves his sons and he loves his daughters. And from the very beginning, he has been actively working to restore the dignity that some of us have had stolen from us. I know we can't touch, but would you just kind of put your hands up toward those beautiful sisters on either side of you? Those of y'all that are watching this video, um, I want to encourage you, if, if we're in a season where we don't have to practice social distancing, would you reach out and touch that precious person on either side of you? You'd be surprised how many people don't have hands that mean them well. Sometimes just having a sister put a hand on your back or hold your hand when they pray. Be amazed how much healing comes from that. Jesus, 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 thank you for these stories. Thank you that you're a redeemer. Thank you that you're kind. Thank you that you've always, always been in the process of restoring the inherent dignity you imbued into us as image bearers, as sons and as daughters. We come before you in this moment, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue healing the places in our own hearts where, you, where we've experienced abuse or discrimination or violation. And we bring that before you, acknowledging that you and only you have the power to heal us, to restore us, to cleanse our minds, to heal the bruises on our hearts. And Lord Jesus, we pray for our friends for men and for women and for children. We have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with all image bearers of you. And for those that have been so deeply wounded that they can barely look other people in the eye. We pray that you would restore them the way you restore Joyce. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would all grow up to be a little more like Joyce, that we would be so undone by your redemptive kindness that we can't help but dance gratitude, that we can't help but slosh some measure of the healing grace you have lavished on us to the people that we get to do life with. We love you, Jesus. Again, we ask that you would give us eyes to see clear and ears to hear louder and hearts to understand more fully who you are as our Redeemer and who you've called us to be as your beloved sons and daughters. We ask this by the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. And we ask it for your redemptive purposes, God. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly D. King and at E.D. Heineman. 
Use the hashtag MarkedPodcast to connect with us. You can also find Lifeway Women on all social media channels at Lifeway Women. All of today's show notes will be posted at LifeWayWomen.com slash podcast. If you love the show, leave an iTunes review. It's a great way for other people to hear about the podcast. We'll see you next time.